All right, well, uh, good morning and welcome. My name is Brandon. I, I think I might have forgot to introduce myself when I uh, got up here first here, but my name is Brandon. I'm one of the pastors here at River City. Uh, welcome. It is good to have you. If you are new or visiting, just want to say especially welcome. Glad you are here. If there is anything that we can do to serve you or help you get connected, man, we would just love to do that. Like Becky said, I encourage you to fill out a connection card, but just talk to somebody. We'd, we'd really love to get to know you. So. Uh, this fall, uh, we have been studying uh, the first part of the book of Genesis. We're kind of taking a dive in on chapters 1 through 11 in the book of Genesis. And what we've seen so far in our study in Genesis is that Genesis is so foundationally important to our faith, not because it tells us about the specific scientific how of creation, but it tells us about the who of creation. Genesis 1 especially is telling us about who God is and what he is like. It tells us about his nature and his character, but what we find is that we don't, we don't just find out who God is in, in the early parts of Genesis. We find out who we are as well. We see at the end of chapter 1, verse 26 and 28 says that, that human, humanity is made in the image of God. And Genesis 1, we saw, makes a really, really big deal about that truth. And so we spent the last four weeks taking a look at the, the meaning and the implications of what it means that humanity, that we are God's image bearers, that we are his commissioned and sent image bearers. And and so, uh, so we spent four weeks taking a look at that. And last week, we finally got to Genesis chapter 3. And you're thinking, six weeks in, and we are only on the third chapter. We've got to pick up the pace if we're going to get through this before Jesus comes back, right? And so we are. We're going to get picking up the pace here a little bit, right? Um, but what we saw in Genesis chapter 3, as theologians refer to it as, as, as the fall, we saw in Genesis chapter 3 not just the first sin, but we saw the root of all sin. And we said that the root of all sin is, is not just wrong behavior or wrong, just wrong mistakes, but the root of sin is a rejection of our identity and our purpose as God's image-bearing representatives. And instead, we stage a coup, and we dethrone God, and we enthrone ourselves. Instead of God telling us what is right and good and true, we want to be the ones that decide what is right and good and true. We want to be the, side, the ones that decide what is best for us and what is best for this world that we live in. You see, what happens at the root of sin is that we want to be God. And that's why the consequences of sin are so severe, because sin is not just a mistake. It's not just a wrong choice. Sin is mutinous rebellion against God. And sin changes everything. We saw it, it distorts God's perfect world. It ruins, it ruins our relationship with God. It ruins the relationship that Adam and Eve have with one another. It ruins the relationship they have with the rest of creation. And so just three chapters in, the world God created and proclaimed was very good is now marred by sin. And instead of enjoying God and enjoying their identity and their purpose as image, his image bearers, humanity is running from God and hiding from him. But as we'll see over the next two weeks, the destruction that sin causes doesn't end at, in chapter 3. We'd love for it to be like that painful shot, you know, it's over in a second, but that's not what the Bible teaches us, and so we need to study further. You see, the destruction sin causes isn't over at the close of chapter 3. No, what we'll see over the course of the next few weeks is that the, we'll see the destructiveness of sin, and we'll see it spreading. You see, sin keeps growing like a disease, and it, what happens is it just seems unstoppable. Things keep getting worse and worse and worse and worse. But just like we saw at the end of chapter 3, here in chapter 4, God gives us a glimmer of hope. What we'll see is that when we follow the rays of that glimmer of hope back to its source, we'll see the thing that lights up our darkness as well. And so as we study this morning, what we'll see is the spread of sin, but we'll also see the hope of God in the midst of it. And so... Let's pray as we begin our study in God's word this morning. Jesus, God, we just come and we say we need you. 
We need you to uh, give us wisdom so that we might see and understand your word rightly. God, I need you. God, as I preach and as I teach, God, I need you to fill me with your spirit. God, I do not have what I need to do this without you. So God, we just want to come, we want to humble ourselves, put ourselves under the authority of your spirit, under the authority of your word. Gosh, pray that that would be good news for us as we do that. God, we think that, that doing things our own way is life-giving, but it never is. And so God, I pray that you would help us to see the goodness of being under the authority of your word. And so God, for, your good, for our good, for your glory, would you, uh, would you speak through us this morning, through, your, through me and through your word. God, give us teachable hearts. Uh, we need you. We pray these things in your good name. Amen. Amen. Well, we are in Genesis chapter 4 this morning, and so I'll read that and we'll, uh, we'll study together. Genesis 4, beginning in verse 1, says this, Adam made love to his wife Eve, and she became pregnant and gave birth to Cain. She said, with the help of the Lord, I have brought forth a man. Later she gave birth to his brother Abel, and now Abel kept flocks and Cain worked the soil. And in the course of time, Cain brought some of the fruits of the soil as an offering to the Lord. And Abel also brought an offering, fat portions from some of the firstborn of his flock. And the Lord looked with favor on Abel and his offering, but on Cain and his offering, he did not look with favor. And so Cain was very angry, and his face was downcast. Then the Lord said to Cain, why are you angry? Why is your face downcast? If you do what is right, will you not be accepted? But if you do not do what is right, sin is crouching at your door. It desires to have you, but you must rule over it. Now Cain said to his brother Abel, let's go out to the field. And while they were in the field, Cain attacked his brother and he killed him. And the Lord said to Cain, where is your brother Abel? I don't know, he replied. Am I my brother's keeper? And the Lord said, what have you done? Listen, your brother's blood cries out to me from the ground. Now you are under a curse and driven from the ground, which has opened its mouth to receive your brother's blood from your hand. And when you work the ground, it will no longer yield its crops for you, and you will be a restless wanderer on earth. And Cain said to the Lord, my punishment is more than I can bear. Today you are, giving, you are driving me from the land, and I will be hidden from your presence. I will be a restless wanderer on earth, and whoever finds me will kill me. But the Lord said to him, not so, for anyone who kills Cain will suffer vengeance seven times over. And the Lord put a mark on Cain so that no one who found him would kill him. So Cain went out from the Lord's presence and he lived in the land of Nod, east of Eden. And Cain made love to his wife and she became pregnant and gave birth to Enoch. And Cain was then building a city and named it after his son Enoch. And to Enoch was born Erad, and Erad was the father of Mahulalel, and Mahulajel was the father of Methuselah, and Methuselah was the father of Lamech. Lamech married two women. One was named Ada, and one was named Zillah. And Ada gave birth to Jabal, who was the father of those who live in tents and raise livestock. And his brother's name was Jubal, who was the father of all those who play stringed instruments and pipes. And Zillah also had a son, Tubal Cain, who forgot, who forged all kinds of tools out of bronze and iron. And Tubal Cain's sister was Naamah. And Lamech said to his wives, Ada and Zillah, listen to me, wives of Lamech, hear my words. I have killed a man for wounding me. A young man for injuring me. And if Cain is avenged seven times, then Lamech avenged 77 times. And Adam made love to his wife again, and she gave birth to a son and named him Seth, saying, God has granted me another child in place of Abel since Cain killed him. And Seth also had a son, and he named him Enosh. And at that time, people began to call on the name of the Lord. See, as we study this morning, there's three things that I want to show you about what the passage teaches us about the spread of sin. First is that it shows us where sin spreads. It shows us how sin spreads. And lastly, it shows us what will ultimately stop the spread of sin in the end. 
You see, chapter 3, it ended with this glimmer of hope that one day the offspring of the woman would crush the head of the serpent. We said, Genesis 3.15, we, we said theologians refer to that as the proto-evangelion, the, the first declaration of the gospel. That one day Satan and sin and death would be defeated, that the offspring of the woman, that it, through the offspring of the woman, God would, would fix things, God would restore all things back to the way he intended them to be. And in verse one, 4, chapter 4, verse 1, it begins with some offspring of the woman. And the reader would initially hear hope. Oh, maybe this will be the one. But what we quickly, what we quickly, quickly becomes clear is that this offspring is not the one who will bring an end to sin. Now, this offspring will actually spread the disease of sin. You see, we don't see the end of sin in Genesis four. We see it spreading, and we see it spreading in two distinct ways, two directions. The first is an outward spread of sin. In chapter 3, we saw the infiltration of sin into the human race. And here in chapter 4, we see it spreading from individuals to families. Sin spreads from Adam, to, from Adam and Eve to their son Cain, who ends up murdering his brother Abel. I don't know if you, are, if you have the, the honor of being a parent yet, but man, one of, the, one of the most humbling things is when you see your own sin in your kids. When you see your own failings, when you see your the own ways that you don't trust God and don't live for him, when you see some of that begin to creep up in your kids, man, that is hard. You see, sin, it spreads through families. But the outward spread of sin doesn't just stop at families. Verses 17 through 24, it traces the spread of sin from the line of Cain from families throughout to society. And it continues on from there. You see, we still see the spread, this outward spread of sin in our society today. It, it keeps coming over and over and over. And yes, there are glimmers of hope in this world. But while this world might look more and more presentable on the outside, it is getting sicker and sicker on the inside. You see, what we see is not a world that is getting better and better, but a world that is getting sicker and sicker. You see, there's more slavery today than there ever was before. It just takes a different form. The gap between the rich and the poor is not shrinking. It is ever widening. The pursuit of absolute freedom has only led to more and more oppression. You see, this world is not getting better and better. It is getting sicker and sicker. And that's because the outward spread of sin is merely a symptom of the other direction that we see sin spreading in this passage, and that's inward. You see, the spread of sin doesn't just get wider. The spread of sin goes deeper. It's going deeper into the hearts of humanity. You see, the passage begins with a worship service. Cain and Abel, they both bring their offerings to God, and they get two different responses. The passage says, The Lord looked with favor on Abel and his offering, but not so with Cain. And there have been a large amount of attempts to explain why. Why does God look with favor on Cain or on Abel and not on Cain? And most of those attempts have to do with something about trying to figure out, was there something about the type of offering that Cain brought that was a problem? Was there something about the, maybe the quality of Cain's offering that was different? I mean, if I was God, I would be a lot more pleased with a steak than a carrots. But that's not really what's happening here, unfortunately, right? There's, there's, something, there's something deeper going on here. You see, the Hebrew word that's used for offering, it doesn't refer to a sacrificial offering like the ones that we see later in the Old Testament. It's not, a, it's not about the forgiveness of sin here. Rather, the word that we see here used to refer to offering refers to a dedication offering. It, it's a worship offering. And what we see later in Leviticus is that this type of offering, in this type of offering, you just you bring what you have. And so verse 2 tells us that Abel kept flocks and that Cain worked the soil. And so both Cain and Abel, they, they're bringing to the Lord what they have. Cain is a farmer, and so he brings the things that he farms. Abel is a shepherd, so he brings the sheep that he, that he's, that he brings. You see, 
There is something different going on here. It's not about the quality of their offering. It's not about the type of offering. The real problem with Cain's offering is the heart problem behind it. And we see that revealed in the way that Cain responds to the Lord. You see, Cain's response to God's favor towards Abel and not him. What does the passage say? It says that he is just very angry. He is seething with anger. If you were with us this summer, we saw in Proverbs that our anger, what our anger does is it reveals the things that we really love. Our anger reveals the things that we love most, the things we want most. And when that thing is taken from us or when that thing is kept from us, our response is often anger. One author says it this way. He says, anger is our response to whatever endangers something we love. But all anger is not wrong. Jesus got angry. So anger in itself is not the problem. What's going on is what anger reveals. You see, anger is not the problem. The problem is that what our anger usually reveals is not that we love God the most. It's not that we worship him above all else. It's that there is someone or something else that holds that place of ultimate importance in our lives. There is something we long for more than we long for him. It reveals an ultimate love and a worship of someone or something other than God. And see, Cain's anger reveals that his offering to God, Cain's anger reveals that his offering to God wasn't worship, it was just bribery. See, what Cain wants most is not God. What Cain wants most is God's favor. What Cain wants most is God's blessing. What Cain wants most is God's acceptance. And God sees her right through it. In contrast, Hebrews chapter 11, verses 4 and 6, it tells us about Abel's offering. It says this, By faith, Abel brought God a better offering than Cain did. By faith, he was commended as righteous. You see, without faith, it is impossible to please God because anyone who comes to him must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who earnestly seek him. You see, what the Bible teaches us is that Abel was seeking God and Cain was seeking God's blessings. You see, one is worship, the other is just bribery. You see, sin is twisting the desires of our hearts. Where once God put in us a desire for him and a longing to be with him, what we see in Cain's heart is that sin is going deeper. We see him not longing for God anymore. He just wants God's stuff. He just wants God's blessing. He just wants God's favor. He doesn't actually want God himself. And you see, and we see sin spreading deeper and deeper inward, not just in Cain's distorted desires, but, but in the fact that Cain cannot see or simply refuses to see that his heart is the problem, that his sin is the problem. Instead, he blames his brother. Where, where in chapter 3, Adam and Eve, as soon as they sinned, they felt guilt. They understood what was wrong. They realized that they had opposed God. And what we see here in Cain is that Cain refuses to even acknowledge that he is in sin. And later on at the end of the chapter, we see Cain's ascendant, Lamech. He, he's not, he doesn't feel guilt. He, he's not indignant in Lamech. There is absolute pride in him. I killed somebody for just even looking at me wrong. And I'm proud of it. You see, the, you see sin spreading deeper and deeper and deeper. It's not just going wider. It's going deeper into the hearts of humanity. That leads us to the second thing that the passage shows us about the spread of sin. It tells us how sin spreads. In verse 7, God comes to Cain in his anger before he kills his brother. And God warns Cain about the dangerous spread of sin in two ways. He says, Cain, sin is crouching at your door. It desires to have you. You see, sin spreads by crouching. 
God is warning Cain. Sin is lurking at your door. It's, it's ready to pounce. There's this YouTube channel I love to watch called The Lion Whisperer, and it's about this guy who has these incredible relationships with lions. And he's like raised them from birth or something like that. And, and a lot of his videos are just he'll go for walks with them in the, like in the Serengeti or whatever, National Reserve or whatever he's in, right? And it's just like one of those amazing things. And every once in a while, what will happen, it's just this wild nature reserve. Every once in a while, what will happen is that they'll be on their walk and everyone will just stop. And the lions will immediately hunker down. And they crouch. Because they see something that they're about to attack. And so they crouch and they get low and they hide in the grass. You see, what are they doing? What are the lions doing when, when they when they hear something, they see something that they, that they want to devour, they crouch and they get low. You see, they're trying to hide themselves. They're trying to be smaller than they really are so that their prey will underestimate the danger that they are in or that they will just overlook it entirely. You see, sin does this to us all the time. That pride issue I keep wrestling with, it's, it's not really that big of a deal. That comfort idol I keep pursuing, it's not really hurting anybody else. It was just one lie with my boss. I just needed him to see that I was doing what he was trying to get me to do. It was just one video that I shouldn't have watched. I have the right to be angry. They, they really offended me. You see, all that is doing is that's, that sin is crouching. It's hoping that we'll underestimate that there is something beneath our anger. That there is something beneath our longings. It's hoping that we'll miss that. That we'll overlook the real danger altogether. You see, sin is hiding itself from Cain, and instead of seeing his own sinful desires as the problem, Cain sees Abel as the problem. And in his anger and in his jealousy, he gets rid of what he thinks the problem is. And he falls headfirst into the trap of sin. It has him. You see, God warned him that sin was trying to do this. You see, the dangerous nature of the spread of sin is not just that it hides itself. You see, when it pops out, it's not a surprise. It's deadly. You see, it hides because it wants to do is to lure in so that it can have you, that it might devour you. You see, like the lion who lays in wait until just the right moment, and then all of a sudden, in the blink of an eye, the animal is gone. You see, Cain's real problem was that he wanted God's blessings and not God. And he allowed his jealous anger of his brothers receiving what he really wanted and God keeping it from him. He allowed that to just consume him. But sin was not done with Cain once he had murdered his brother. You see, that was just the beginning of sin devouring him. One pastor I listened to this week, he said it this way. I think this is so helpful. He says the devouring of sin is not just that it causes us to sin. He says, sin is not done with you after you are done with it. He said, after you do a sin, the sin does you. C.S. Lewis echoed this when he wrote this. At first, the Nazis killed the Jews because they hated them. Then they hated them because they had killed them. You see, when you mistreat someone with anger, you have to stay angry. Otherwise, you lose your justification for why you were angry and why you did what you did in the first place. You see this in Cain's response to God's question. God comes to Cain after he murders your brother. He says, where is your brother? God knows what has happened to Abel. God's question is, is an offer for, a Cain, for, a, for a chance for him to repent, to acknowledge his sin and to, to turn from it. But Cain's response is indignance. He says, I don't know where my brother is. Am I his keeper? Do I have some kind of responsibility for him? You see, sin is consuming 
Cain. It doesn't just cause him to murder his brother. It causes him to reject God altogether. You see, this passage is incredibly dark. We see sin spreading inward and outward. It's going deeper and it's reaching farther and it only seems to get worse and worse as you follow Cain's line to Lamech. But the passage doesn't end with sin of Cain or the sin of Lamech. It ends with more offspring. Chapter 4, verse 25 tells us this. tells us about another son that God granted to Adam and Eve. See, Cain was not the one who would end sin, nor was Abel, but God's promises had not failed. You see, chapter 4 ends with a glimmer of hope in the line of Seth, whose sons called on the name of the Lord instead of against him. And when we follow that flickering light, that dimly, that dim light back to its source, we see the thing that lights up our darkness. You see, we see the only thing that will stop the spread of sin. Because when you follow the line of Seth, you get to Noah and you get to Abraham, and eventually you get to King David. But at the end of the line of Seth, you get not just to King David, you get to the King of Kings. You see, you get to King Jesus, and oh, how we need to get to him. Verse, tell, verse 7, God tells Cain, if you do what is right, won't you be accepted? You see, Cain did not do what was right, and neither do we. Cain did not master sin as God warned him to, and neither have we. Oh, but there was one who did. And his name is Jesus. He always did what was right, and he mastered sin, but he did it for us on our behalf. And it's through him that we are both accepted by God, the thing Cain longed for the most. We're also empowered by God to actually overcome sin and oppose it. You see, Abel's blood cried out to God. And in Hebrews chapter 12, verse 24, tells us that Jesus' blood cries out to God as well. It says, verse 12, 24 of Hebrews says, and Jesus' blood speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. One pastor writes it this way, Jesus is the true and better Abel who, though innocently slain, has blood that cries out not for condemnation, but instead for acquittal. You see, the blood of Abel cried out for justice. The blood of Abel cried out for vengeance. But the blood of Jesus cries out for mercy and for forgiveness. You see, in Christ, God brings about both justice and forgiveness. And it's in his name and it's by his power that we are able to overcome sin as Jesus did. You see, Jesus' blood halts the outward spread of sin into the world because it deals with the real problem. It deals with the inward spread of sin into our hearts. You see, the Bible tells us that in Christ we are made new and that God replaces our hearts of stone with hearts of flesh that actually long to love him and follow him and serve him. You see, the outward spread of sin will only be stopped when, by people who God makes new and who he empowers to live as new. You see, true worship doesn't just stop at God making us right with him. It doesn't just stop at positional holiness. You see, true worship... It leads to actual holiness. And so the question for us then is, how do we master sin instead of being mastered by it? I think there's three things that we need to see. One is that we need to see the reality of our sin. You see, God asks Cain the questions that we need to be asking ourselves. God comes to Cain, and he says, Cain, why are you angry? Do you think God's asking Cain that question because he doesn't know the answer? 
The Bible is so clear. God knows all things. He sees into the hearts of men. God knows what Cain is thinking. God knows why Cain is angry. Why is, he, why is God asking him? Because Cain doesn't realize why he is angry yet. Cain doesn't realize what is going on in his heart, and so God comes to Cain, and he says, Cain, why are you angry? What he's offering Cain is a chance to evaluate his own heart to say, Cain, what is happening underneath? There's something going on in your heart, Cain. You need to become aware of what is going on. You see, and what happens is we just overlook sin. We overlook what's going on, and we allow our anger or our pride or the things that we love to consume us. You see, we need to see the reality of our sin. What's going on for Cain is not just a mistake. It's not just a misdirected offering. What's going on is that Cain is rejecting God as the one who is the giver of life, and he just wants God's stuff instead of him. Like Cain, we often want the gift, and we don't want the giver. And so we must repent of the things that we love and the things that we long for more than God. And we must repent of trying to bribe God with our lives. You see, that's the essence of religiosity. You can be religious in any faith practice. You see, but religion is all about the stuff that you try to do to get God. The stuff that you try to do to get his blessings. The stuff that you try to do to try to earn his favor. To try to merit his relationship. But the gospel is all about the things that God has done to get to you. In the gospel, we get God and we get his gifts. And it empowers us to long for him more than we actually want his stuff. You see, we need to see the reality of our sin so that we might turn from it. But we also need to see the danger of it. You see, we cannot underestimate or overlook the seriousness of our sin we cannot believe the lie that sin can be domesticated. <laughs> you see, with sin, it is either kill or be killed. It is, either, it is either root out sin or be devoured by it. You see, we must have the attitude of quitting sin, of being done with it, of no longer tolerating it. And that is one thing to talk about and one thing to, to, want, in pre- to want in theory, but it is another thing entirely to actually pursue. You see, and the only way that we will actually be the only way that we will actually pursue the ending of sin, the only way that we will actually pursue the overcoming of sin, is when we see God in the midst of our sin. You see, we see in our passage this morning a God who comes to Cain and offers him a chance to repent. Cain doesn't deserve that. Cain hasn't earned that. God is not like doing his due diligence. That's God's abundant grace and his mercy that he might offer Cain a chance to repent. See, Cain did not deserve it, and neither do we. And even when Cain is indignant, we see a God who, is instead, of, who, inst- who instead of just smites Cain, we see a God who actually gives Cain a mark. He marks him, and what is God doing when he marks Cain? God is marking him so that no one will kill him and no one will take vengeance on their own. Because in marking God, what God is doing is keeping Cain from getting what his sin deserves until the very end. What is God doing? God is giving Cain a chance to repent. You see, and God gives you and I that same chance to repent. 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 9 says this, The Lord is not slow in keeping his promise, as some understand slowness. 
No, it says instead he is patient with you. He is patient with you, not wanting anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. Some of you are here this morning and you have been running from God for a long time. And God has been offering to you a chance for repentance. He has been showing you your sin. He has been laying it before you. And you have kept saying no. As Cain, you've responded, I don't know where my brother is. I'm not his keeper. But there is an invitation for you this morning, the same one God gives to Cain, that you might come and repent. And it's his patience with you. It's his grace towards you. It's his mercy towards you that each day he would give you more chances to come. You see, God is just, and so sin will be paid for. The only question is, who will pay it? It will either be you. You will be the one who pays the penalty for your sin, or you will cling to Jesus who has paid it for you. Because in him we see a God who not only is just and patient, but we see a God who forgives sin by paying it himself. You see, you and I will never gain complete mastery over sin in this life, but Jesus did. And his performance on our behalf is what brings us forgiveness and acceptance before God. You see, and that under, undeserved, unmerited status that we have because of him, it fuels our passionate obedience to him. You see, we want to honor Jesus because of all that he has done for us. You see, guilt will never actually drive out sin. There is no amount of guilt that will actually cause you to actually be done with sin. You see, sin... Guilt cannot drive out sin, but love can. You see, a love for Jesus that overwhelms our love for anything else, that's the thing that drives out our sin. You see, we are already accepted. We are already loved. We are already forgiven. And so we run to Jesus, and we run to him, not to get something from him, but because we have in him received all that we actually need and what we really actually long for. What we need is the expulsive power of a new affection you see if we want to have mastery over sin we've got to love something more than we love our sin we've got to see jesus as beautiful we've got to see his work and his his, what he has accomplished for us on our behalf as the good news that our hearts long for and that we need you see and when we see the reality of our sin when we see the danger of our sin, but when we see a God who meets us in our sin, oh, how we will enjoy the gospel. Oh, how it will be good news to our hearts. And what it will produce in us is worship, not just with songs, but with lives that increasingly look like the one whose image we bear. With lives that are increasingly done with sin. You see, in communion, that's what we remember and celebrate, that in Christ we are forgiven, that we are accepted by God, that we are rebellious sinners who have been made children of God, not because of our own work or because of our merit or because of our performance, because of Jesus' performance on our behalf and our faith in him. You see, the bread and the drink, they remind us of Jesus' blood, which was broken for us and shed for us as he did what was right, as he mastered sin, as he did it for us on our behalf so that we could be forgiven, so that we could be accepted. 
And what we're doing as we take communion is we are proclaiming the gospel. We're reminding ourselves about who God is and who we are because of him and who he has made us to be. You see, communion does not make you right with God. It does not save you. It does not change your status or your standing with him in any way, shape, or form. Instead, communion is a chance for us to remember and celebrate all that God has done for us in the person and the work of Jesus And so if you have trusted Jesus and if you have believed the gospel, if your hope is in him, if the thing that has stopped the halt of sin deeper into your heart is the person and work of Jesus, if the thing that empowers you to live for him is the person and the work of Jesus, not your own effort and your own energy, then during our time of worship, go back and take communion and do it as a celebration. There are two tables in the back. There's one at the back on the left and one on the right. And, and you go and you dip the bread into the juice, and that's how you do communion here at River City Church. And there's not going to be someone who dismisses you because communion is a chance for you to worship the Lord in your own heart, as you might do that, and for us to do that collectively together. And so during our time of worship, as you feel led, go back and take communion. Do it as a celebration. And as you do, talk to God. Ask him to show you your sin, to help you see the reality of it. Ask him to show you the danger that you are really in. But more than that, ask him to show you his son, Jesus. And ask him to show you his love and acceptance and forgiveness in his work on your behalf. For your good, so that you might live for him, that you might be done with sin and have mastery over it, but ultimately not for you ultimately for the glory of God in this age and in every age to come. To that end, let's pray. God, we are so grateful for you. God, we are thankful that chapter 4 of Genesis doesn't leave us sitting in the muck and the mire of of the sin of Cain and the sin of Lamech. But God, you give us a glimmer of hope in in the life of Seth and the line of Seth that one day there would come one who would bring a halt to sin. There was one day, one in your person and the work of your son, Jesus, God, that would, that would say to sin, you may go no further. God, in fact, in, in your person, in your work of Jesus, in your kingdom, God, you actually drive out sin and you bring about a kingdom that is opposed to sin and you overcome sin through your work. And so, God, we say we need you. God, we want to be a people who is not mastered by sin but have mastery over it. God, for our good, but ultimately for your glory, that we might live as your image-bearing representatives, not marred by sin, but, but living in our identities and our purpose as your representatives here. And so, God, we just admit to you, we come to you say, we, have, we don't have the power to do that on our own. We can't want it enough. God, we can't try hard enough. God, we say we need you to fill us with your spirit. God, I pray that For those who are here this morning who have not received your grace yet like Cain did, God, I pray that, God, that you would show them your patience. God, how you are patient with them. God, not slow, but patient so that they may come to repentance. Jesus, would you be gracious to bring that about? God, would you cause us to live lives that are beautiful for you? God, for our good, but most of all, for your great glory. In your good name. Amen.